Chapter Fifty Two, Part Two, of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Five, Chapter Fifty Two. Part two. Constantinople and the Greek fire might exclude the Arabs from the eastern entrance of Europe, but in the west, on the side of the Pyrenees, the provinces of Gaul were threatened and invaded by the conquerors of Spain. The decline of the French monarchy invited the attack of these insatiate fanatics. The descendants of Clovis had lost the inheritance of his martial and ferocious spirit, and their misfortune or demerit has affixed the epithet of lazy to the last kings of the Merovingian race. They ascended the throne without power, and sunk into the grave without a name. A country palace in the neighborhood of Campaign was allotted for their residence or prison, but each year in the months of March or May, they were conducted in a wagon drawn by oxen to the assembly of the Franks, to give audience to foreign ambassadors and to ratify the acts of the major of the palace. That domestic officer was become the minister of the nation and the master of the prince. A public employment was converted into the patrimony of a private family. The elder Pepin left a king of mature years under the guardianship of his own widow and her child and these feeble regions were forcibly dispossessed by the most active of his bastards. A government, half savage and half corrupt, was almost dissolved, and the tributary dukes and provincial counts, and the territorial lords, were tempted to despise the weakness of the monarch, and to imitate the ambition of the mayor. Among these independent chiefs, one of the boldest and most successful was Oides, Duke of Aquitaine, who in the southern provinces of Gaul usurped the authority and even the title of king. The Goths, the Gascons, and the Franks assembled under the standard of the, this Christian hero. He repelled the first invasion of the Saracens, and Zama, lieutenant of the Caliph, lost his army and his life under the walls of Toulouse. The ambition of his successors was stimulated by revenge, they repassed the Pyrenees with the means and the resolution of conquest. The advantageous situation which had recommended Narbonne as the first Roman colony was again chosen by the Moslems. They claimed the province of Septimania or Languedoc as a just dependence of the Spanish monarchy. The vineyards of Gascony and the city of Bordeaux were possessed by the sovereign of Damascus and Samarkand and the south of France, from the mouth of the Garonne to that of the Rhone, assumed the manners and religion of Arabia. But these narrow limits were scorned by the spirit of Abdal-Rahman, or Abdiram, who had been restored by the Caliph Hashem to the wishes of the soldiers and people of Spain. That veteran and daring commander adjudged to the obedience of the Prophet whatever yet remained of France or of Europe, and prepared to execute this sentence, at the head of a formidable host, in the full confidence of surmounting all opposition either of nature or of man. 
his first care was to suppress a domestic rebel, who commanded the most important passes on the Pyrenees. Manuza, a Moorish chief, had accepted the alliance of the Duke of Aquitaine, and Oides, from a motive of private or public interest, devoted his beautiful daughter to the embraces of the African misbeliever. With the strongest fortresses of Cardain were invested by a superior force, the rebel was overtaken and slain in the mountains, and his widow was sent a captive to Damascus to gratify the desires, or more probably the vanity, of the commander of the faithful. From the Pyrenees, Abdiram proceeded without delay to the passage of the Rhone and the siege of Arles. An army of Christians attempted the relief of the city. The tombs of their leaders were yet visible in the thirteenth century and many thousands of their dead bodies were carried down the rapid stream into the Mediterranean Sea. The arms of Abdimar were not less successful on the side of the ocean. He passed without opposition the Garonne and Dordogne, which unite their waters in the Gulf of Bordeaux, but he found, beyond those rivers, the camp of the interpid Oides, who had formed a second army and sustained a second defeat, so fatal to the Christians, that, According to their sad confession, God alone could reckon the number of the slain. The victorious Saracen overran the provinces of Aquitaine, whose Gallic names are disguised, rather than lost, in the modern appellations of Perigord, Saint-Ton, and Poitou. His standards were planted on the walls, or at least before the gates, of Tours and of Saints, and his detachments overspread the kingdom of Burgundy, as far as the well-known cities of Lyons and Besançon. The memory of these devastations, for Abdimar did not spare the country or the people, was long preserved by tradition, and the invasion of France by the Moors or Mahometans affords the groundwork of those fables which have been so wildly disfigured in the romances of chivalry, and so elegantly adorned by the Italian muse. In the decline of society and art, the deserted cities could supply a slender booty to the Saracens. Their richest spoil was found in the churches and monasteries, which they stripped of their ornaments and delivered to the flames. And the tutelar saints, both Hilary of Poitiers and Martin of Tours, forgot their miraculous powers in the defense of their own sepulchres. A victorious line of march had been prolonged above a thousand miles, from the rock of Gibraltar to the banks of the Loire, the repetition of an equal space would have carried the Saracens to the confines of Poland and the highlands of Scotland. The Rhine is not more impassable than the Nile or Euphrates, and the Arabian fleet might have sailed without a naval combat into the mouth of the Thames. Perhaps the interpretation of the Koran would now be taught in the schools of Oxford, and her pulpits might demonstrate to circumcised people the sanctity and truth of the revelation of Mohammed. From such calamities was Christendom delivered by the genius and fortune of one man. Charles, the illegitimate son of the elder Pepin, was content with the titles of mayor or duke of the Franks, but he deserved to become the father of a line of kings. In a laborious administration of twenty-four years, he restored and supported the dignity of the throne, and the rebels of Germany and Gaul were successively crushed, by the activity of a warrior, who, in the same campaign, could display his banner on the Elbe 
the Rhone, and the shores of the ocean. In the public danger he was summoned by the voice of his country, and his rival, the Duke of Aquitaine, was reduced to appear among the fugitives and suppliants. Alas! exclaimed the Franks, what a misfortune, what an indignity! We have long heard of the name and conquests of the Arabs. We are apprehensive of their attack from the east. They have now conquered Spain, and invade our country on the side of the west. Yet their numbers, and, since they have no buckler, their arms are inferior to our own. If you follow my advice, replied the prudent mayor of the palace, you will not interrupt their march, nor precipitate your attack. They are like a torrent, which it is dangerous to steam in its career. The thirst of riches and the consciousness of success redouble their valor, and valor is of more avail than arms or numbers. Be patient till they have loaded themselves with the encumbrance of wealth. The possession of wealth will divide their counsels and assure your victory. This subtile policy is perhaps a refinement of the Arabian writers, and the situation of Charles will suggest a more narrow and selfish motive of procrastination, the secret desire of humbling the pride and wasting the provinces of the rebel duke of Aquitaine. It is yet more probable that the delays of Charles were inevitable and reluctant. A standing army was unknown under the first and second race. More than half the kingdom was now in the hands of the Saracens, according to their respective situation. The Franks of Neustria and Austrasia were too conscious or too careless of the impeding danger, and the voluntary aids of the Gepidae and Germans were separated by a long interval from the standard of the Christian general. No sooner had he collected his forces than he thought and found the enemy in the tent of France, between Tours and Poitiers. His well-conducted march was covered with a range of hills, and Abdimar appears to have been surprised by his unexpected presence. The nations of Asia, Africa, and Europe advanced with equal ardor to an encounter which would change the history of the world. In the six first days of desultory combat, the horsemen and archers of the east maintained their advantage. But in the closer onset of the seventh day, the Orientals were oppressed by the strength and stature of the Germans, who, with stout hearts and iron hands, asserted the civil and religious freedom of their posterity. The epithet of Martel, the Hama, which has been added to the name of Charles, is expressive of his weighty and irresistible strokes. The valor of Oides was excited by resentment and emulation, and their companions, in the eye of history, are the true peers and paladins of French chivalry. After a bloody feud in which Abdimram was slain, the Saracens, in the close of the evening, retired to their camp. In the disorder and despair of the night, the various tribes of Yemen and Damascus, of Africa and Spain, were provoked to turn their arms against each other. The remains of their host were suddenly dissolved, and each emir consulted his safety by a hasty and separate retreat. At the dawn of the day, the stillness of a hostile camp was suspected by the victorious Christians. On the report of their spies, they ventured to explore the riches of the vacant tents. But if we accept some celebrated relics, a small portion of the spoil was restored to the innocent and lawful owners. 
The joyful tidings were soon diffused over the Catholic world, and the monks of Italy could affirm and believe that 350 or 375 thousand of Mahometans had been crushed by the hammer of Charles, while no more than 1,500 Christians were slain in the field of Tours. But this incredible tale is sufficiently disproved by the caution of the French general, who apprehended the snares and accidents of a pursuit, and dismissed his German allies to their native forests. The inactivity of a conqueror betrays the loss of strength and blood, and the most cruel execution is inflicted, not in the ranks of battle, but on the backs of a flying enemy. Yet the victory of the Franks was complete and final. Aquitaine was recovered by the arms of Oides. The Arabs never resumed the conquest of Gaul, and they were soon driven beyond the Pyrenees by Charles Martel and his valiant race. It might have been expected that the savior of Christendom would have been canonized, or at least applauded by the gratitude of the clergy, who are indebted to his sword for their present existence. But in the public distress the mayor of the palace had been compelled to apply the riches, or at least the revenues of the bishops and abbots, to the relief of the state and the reward of the soldiers. His merits were forgotten, his sacrilege alone was remembered, and in an epistle to a Carlovingian prince, a Gallic synod presumes to declare that his ancestor was damned, that on the opening of his tomb the spectators were affrighted by a smell of fire and the aspect of a horrid dragon, and that the saint of the times was indulged with a pleasant vision of the soul and body of Charles Martel, burning to all eternity in the abyss of hell. The loss of an army or a province in the western world was less painful to the court of Damascus than the rise and progress of a domestic competitor. Except among the Syrians, the caliphs of the house of Omiyah had never been the objects of the public favor. The life of Mahomet recorded their perseverance in idolatry and rebellion. Their conversion had been reluctant, their elevation irregular and factious and their throne was cemented with the most holy and noble blood of Arabia. The best of their race, the pious Omar, was dissatisfied with his own title. Their personal virtues were insufficient to justify a departure from the order of succession, and the eyes and wishes of the faithful were turned towards the line of Hashem, and the kindred of the apostle of God. Of these the Fatimites were either rash or pusillanimous, but the descendants of Abbas cherished, with courage and discretion, the hopes of their rising fortunes. From an obscure residence in Syria, they secretly dispatched their agents and missionaries, who preached in the eastern provinces their hereditary indefeasible right, and Mohammed, the son of Ali, the son of Abdullah, the son of Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet, gave audience to the deputies of Khorasan and accepted their free gift of four hundred thousand pieces of gold. After the death of Mohammed, the oath of allegiance was administered in the name of his son Ibrahim to a numerous band of votaries, who expected only a signal and a leader, and the governor of Khorasan continued to deplore his fruitless admonitions and the deadly slumber of the caliphs of Damascus, till he himself, with all his adherents, was driven from the city and palace of Meru by the rebellious arms of Abu Moslem. 
that maker of kings, the author, as he is named, of the call of the Abbasides, was at length rewarded for his presumption of merit with the usual gratitude of courts. A mean, perhaps a foreign, extraction could not repress the aspiring energy of Abu Moslem. Jealous of his wives, liberal of his wealth, prodigal of his own blood, and of that of others, he could boast with pleasure, and possibly with truth, that he had destroyed six hundred thousand of his enemies. And such was the intrepid gravity of his mind and countenance, that he was never seen to smile, except on a day of battle. In the visible separation of parties, the green was consecrated to the Fatimites. The Omeyads were distinguished by the white, and the black, as the most adverse, was naturally adopted by the Abbasides. Their turbans and garments were stained with that gloomy color. Two black standards, on pike staves nine cubits long, were borne aloft in the van of Abu Moslem, and their allegorical names of the night and the shadow obscurely represented the indissoluble union and perpetual succession of the line of Hashem. From the Indus to the Euphrates, the East was convulsed by the quarrel of the white and the black factions. The Abbasides were most frequently victorious, but their public success was clouded by the personal misfortune of their chief. The court of Damascus, awakening from a long slumber, resolved to prevent the pilgrimage of Mecca, which Ibrahim had undertaken with a splendid retinue, to recommend himself at once to the favor of the prophet and of the people. A detachment of cavalry intercepted his march and arrested his person, and the unhappy Ibrahim, snatched away from the promise of untaste royalty, expired in iron fetters in the dungeons of Haran. His two younger brothers, Safar and Al-Mansur, eluded the surge of the tyrant, and lay concealed at Kufa, till the zeal of the people and the approach of his eastern friends allowed them to expose their persons to the impatient public. On Friday, in the dress of a caliph, in the colors of the sect, Safah proceeded with religious and military pomp to the mosque. Ascending the pulpit, he prayed and preached as the lawful successor of Mohammed, and, after his departure, his kinsmen bound a willing people by an oath of fidelity. But it was on the banks of the Zab, and not in the mosque of Kaffa, that this important controversy was determined. Every advantage appeared to be on the side of a white faction. The authority of established government, an army of a hundred and twenty thousand soldiers, against a sixth part of that number, and the presence and merit of the Caliph Mervan, the fourteenth and last of the house of Omeyah. Before his accession to the throne, he had deserved, by his Gregorian warfare, the honorable epithet of the ass of Mesopotamia, and he might have been ranked amongst the greatest princes, had not, says Abulfida, the eternal order decreed that moment for the ruin of his family, a decree against which all human fortitude and prudence must struggle in vain. The orders of Mervyn were mistaken, or disobeyed. The return of his horse, from which he had dismounted on a necessary occasion, impressed the belief of his death, and the enthusiasm of the black squadrons was ably conducted by Abdallah, the uncle of his competitor. After an irretrievable defeat, the caliph escaped to Mosul, but the colors of the Abbasides were displayed from the rampart. He suddenly repassed the Tigris, 
cast a melancholy look on his palace of Haran, crossed the Euphrates, abandoned the fortifications of Damascus, and, without halting in Palestine, pitched his last and fatal camp at Busir, on the banks of the Nile. His speed was urged by the incessant diligence of Abdallah, who in every step of the pursuit acquired strength and reputation. The remains of the white faction were finally vanquished in Egypt, and the lands which terminated the life and anxiety of Mervyn was not less welcome perhaps to the unfortunate than to the victorious chief. The merciless inquisition of the conqueror eradicated the most distant branches of the hostile race. Their bones were scattered, their memory was accursed, and the martyrdom of Hussein was abundantly revenged on the posterity of his tyrants. For score of the Omeids, who had yielded to the faith or clemency of their foes, were invited to a banquet at Damascus. The laws of hospitality were violated by a promiscuous massacre. The board was spread over their fallen bodies, and the festivity of the guests was enlivened by the music of their dying groans. By the event of the civil war, the dynasty of the Abbasides was firmly established, but the Christians only could triumph in the mutual hatred and common loss of the disciples of Mohammed. Yet the thousands who were swept away by the sword of war might have been speedily retrieved in the succeeding generation, if the consequences of the revolution had not tended to dissolve the power and unity of the empire of the Saracens. In the proscription of the Omeyads, a royal use of the name of Abdal-Rahman alone escaped the rage of his enemies, who hunted the wandering exile from the banks of the Euphrates to the valleys of Mount Atlas. His presence in the neighborhood of Spain revived the zeal of the white faction. The name and cause of the Abbasides had been first vindicated by the Persians. The West had been pure from civil arms, and the servants of the abdicated family still held by a precarious tenure, the inheritance of their lands and the offices of government. Strongly prompted by gratitude, indignation, and fear, they invited the grandson of the Caliph Hashem to ascend the throne of his ancestors, and, in his desperate condition, the extremes of rashness and prudence were almost the same. The acclamations of the people saluted his landing on the coast of Andalusia, and, after a successful struggle, Abdalrahman established the throne at Cordova, and was the father of the Omeyads of Spain, who reigned above two hundred and fifty years from the Atlantic to the Pyrenees. He slew in battle a lieutenant of the Abbasides, who had invaded his dominions with a fleet and army. The head of Allah in Sultan Kafir was suspended by a daring messenger before the palace of Mecca, and the Caliph al-Mansur rejoiced in his safety that he was removed by seas and lands from such a formidable adversary. Their mutual designs or declarations of offensive war evaporated without effect. But instead of opening a door to the conquest of Europe, Spain was dissevered from the trunk of the monarchy, engaged in perpetual hostility with the East, and inclined to peace and friendship with the Christian sovereigns of Constantinople and France. The example of the Omeyads, was imitated by the real or fictitious progeny of Ali, the Adrissids of Mauritania, and the more powerful Fatimites of Africa and Egypt. In the tenth century the chair of Mohammed was disputed by three caliphs, or commanders of the faithful, who reigned at Baghdad, Cairoan, and Cordova, 
excommunicating each other, and agreed only in a principle of discord, that a sectary is more odious and criminal than an unbeliever. Mecca was the patrimony of the lion of Hashem, yet the Abbasides were never tempted to reside either in the birthplace or the city of the prophet. Damascus was disgraced by the choice, and polluted with the blood, of the Omeyads, and, after some hesitation, Al-Mansur, the brother and successor of Safa, laid the foundations of Baghdad, the imperial seat of his posterity, during a reign of five hundred years. The chosen spot is on the eastern bank of the Tigris, about fifteen miles above the ruins of Modane. The double wall was of a circular form, and such was the rapid increase of a capital, now dwindled to a provincial town, that the funeral of a popular saint might be attended by eight hundred thousand men and sixty thousand women of Baghdad, and the adjacent villages. In this city of peace, amidst the riches of the east, the Abbasides soon disdained the abstinence and frugality of the first caliphs, and aspired to emulate the magnificence of the Persian kings. After his wars and buildings, Al-Mansur, left behind him in gold and silver about thirty million sterling, and this treasure was exhausted in a few years by the vices or virtues of his children. His son Mahadi, in a single pilgrimage to Mecca, expended six millions of dinners of gold. A pious and charitable motive may sanctify the foundation of cisterns and caravanseras, which he distributed along a measured road of seven hundred miles. But his train of camels laden with snow could serve only to astonish the natives of Arabia, and to refresh the fruits and liquors of the royal banquet. The courtiers would surely praise the liberality of his grandson Al-Mamun, who gave away four-fifths of the income of a province, a sum of two millions, four hundred thousand gold dinners, before he drew his foot from the stirrup. At the nuptials of the same prince, a thousand pearls of the largest size were showered on the head of the bride, and a lottery of lands and houses displayed the capricious bounty of fortune. The glories of the court were brightened rather than impaired in the decline of the empire, and a Greek ambassador might admire, or pity, the magnificence of the feeble Moctadar. The caliph's whole army, says the historian Abdul Feda, both horse and foot, was under arms which together made a body of one hundred and sixty thousand men. His state officers, the favorite slaves, stood near him in splendid apparel, their belts glittering with gold and gems. Near them were seven thousand Ernuchs, four thousand of them white, the remainder black. The porters, or doorkeepers, were in number seven hundred. Barges and boats, with the most superb decorations, were seen swimming upon the Tigris. Nor was the palace itself less splendid, in which were hung up thirty-eight thousand pieces of tapestry, twelve thousand five hundred of which were of silk embroidered with gold. The carpets on the floor were twenty-two thousand. A hundred lions were brought out, with a keeper to each lion. Among the other spectacles of rare and stupendous luxury was a tree of gold and silver, spreading into eighteen large branches, on which, and on the lesser baths sat a variety of birds, made of the same precious metals, as well as the leaves of the tree. While the machinery affected spontaneous motions, 
the several birds warbled their natural harmony. Through the scene of magnificence, the Greek ambassador was led by the vizier to the foot of the caliph's throne. In the west, the Omeyads of Spain supported with equal pomp the title of commander of the faithful. Three miles from Cordova, in honor of his favorite sultana, the third and greatest of the Abdal Ramans, constructed the city, palace, and gardens of Zera. Twenty-five years, and about three million sterling, were employed by the founder. His liberal taste invited the artists of Constantinople, the most skillful sculptors and architects of the age, and the buildings were sustained or adorned by twelve hundred columns, of Spanish and African, of Greek and Italian marble. The hall of audience was encrusted with gold and pearls, and a great basin in the center was surrounded with the curious and costly figures of birds and quadrupeds. In a lofty pavilion of the gardens, one of these basins and fountains, so delightful in a sultry climate, was replenished not with water, but with the purest quicksilver. The Seraglio of Abdarrahman, his wives, concubines, and black Avinochs, amounted to six thousand three hundred persons, and he was attended to the field by a guard of twelve thousand horse, whose belts and scimitars were studded with gold. End of chapter fifty two, part two.